Thanks for checking out the YVF podcast today. If this is your first time listening in with us, we want you to know that you are loved. Wherever you're joining us from, we hope this message encourages you, builds your faith, and helps you in whatever season of life you're in. Now here's Pastor Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. Okay. And I'm going to continue the message that I began last week. We're looking at uh, Paul's uh, speech or uh, his final parting words that he was saying to the uh, elders in Ephesus, only they're not in Ephesus. If you remember, he didn't have enough time to stop in Ephesus because he knows that God wants to get him down to Jerusalem and eventually to Rome. Uh, how does he know that? Because he's learned to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit. What could be probably the most important thing that we could be practicing and learning today, and that is listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit. That's going to be the central theme as we go through the rest of these chapters. Uh, the rest of these chapters are kind of a, a, a nautical um, a log of Paul's journey on his way to Rome. There's a lot of information about what's going on with ships and where they are and what kinds of storms they have. And throughout all of these stories and all of his different trials, because we have some really inside details of the trials, uh, and I don't mean trials and tribulations type of trials, but the type of trials where you're arrested and there's a judge that's judging you and what's going on. And the overall theme that we just see over and over again is that in the most difficult of times, in the most difficult of days, that God has a plan and he has a calling for our lives. And that plan and that call cannot be stopped by anyone except perhaps by ourselves if we don't know how to listen and follow the voice of the Holy Spirit if we're not obedient to the Word of God and we see that Paul remains obedient or as he says I was not disobedient in the Bible when they say a double negative like that it means something really strong I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision that God called me uh, too. So in our last message, I gave you four qualities of the man of God. Uh, and I'm not going to go over them again. If you weren't here and didn't hear that, well, we have them on the podcast and on uh, video on YouTube and on Facebook, and you can watch it and you can listen to it. But the first quality was that the man of God, or as I told you last week, if I say man of God, I'm not going to do this he, she thing all the time. If I say man of God, I'm including all women also, and I hope you know that. Uh, but the, the man of God, the person of God, is steadfastly present. He's always there. He said, I was always with you. Uh, number two, uh, a, a man of God is courageously honest. He speaks the word of God, and he speaks it with courage and without fear. Number three, he's undaunted, unchanging, and he's unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And number four, uh, he is bound by the Holy Spirit. Well, today I want to give you four more qualities of the man of God that we see in uh, these parting words of the Apostle Paul. And so we're going to be looking at chapter 20, and we're going to be reading verses 28, beginning with verse 28 through 38. And I, like I said, I don't want to repeat a lot from last week, so we're going to just jump right in with that and look at these four qualities of the man of God, four more qualities of the man of God. So the first one is going to be number five. You just have to add it on to the last message. So let's pray. Father, I just thank you for your word this morning. I pray that as your word goes forth, that we would hear what the Holy Spirit is speaking to our hearts and to our lives. I pray for each one of us as fathers, as mothers, as grandfathers, as grandmothers, as ministers of the gospel, uh, whatever capacity we have been put in as leaders, in, Lord, as shepherds over your flock, that we would take that oversight and we would take it willingly, Lord, and that we would uh, be ones who wash the feet of your disciples, who are servant leaders, who follow after you in the way that you lead us, Lord. I just pray that you would open these qualities to us, Lord, and help us to see ourselves in the mirror of the Word of God this morning. Father, I thank you for these passages of Scripture that we read. I thank you for including this in the Bible, that we could see the heart of the pastor, that we could see the heart of the Apostle Paul. We could see 
uh, under the hood, what's motivating him, what's working down deep in the inside, and what is the source of the kind of courage and strength and success that we see in his ministry, Lord. And I pray that you would make us people like he was, Lord, because uh, it is written in the scripture that the Apostle Paul wrote, uh, be imitators of me as I am an imitator of Christ. And Lord, I thank you for this this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's look at uh, Acts chapter 20. And to begin with, I'm going to read verses 28 through 31. Verses 28 through 31. So we're jumping right into the middle of uh, the uh, parting words uh, that he's speaking to the elders from Ephesus. And remember, they speak to these elders. And it says in verse 28, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. We talked a little bit about this last week, that the word elder and the word overseer and the word shepherd, they're all speaking about the same person. If you are a shepherd, if you are a pastor, if you care for God's sheep in any capacity, then it means that you are an overseer, or what we usually say in English, a bishop, one who watches over their souls. And that also means that you are an elder, one who walks as a, in the position of an elder, that others would follow. So he says to the elders, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. And he says, remember that they have been purchased by God with his own blood, which by the way, is one scripture uh, amongst many, many, many that shows us that Jesus is God. And so he purchased the church. He purchased the lives of each one of us with the highest price that he could pay. If you ever feel in your life um, somewhat depressed or you're having a really bad day and you're feeling bad about yourself, you always need to remember your value to God. And the price that someone pays reveals the value, right? How much they want that. And so the price that Jesus paid is the highest price that anyone could pay. And he paid that price for your life. And he paid that price for this church because he loves us so much. And then verse 29, it says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, Men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. So the first quality of a man of God that I want to speak to you about this morning, uh, so it's the fifth one that we've looked at, is a person of God, a man of God is vigilant. He is vigilant. He says here, to be on guard for yourselves and to be on guard for all the flock. So let's talk first about, of all about that. Being on guard for yourselves. Notice that he gives us two areas that we have to be on guard for. We need to be on guard for ourselves and we need to be on guard for the flock. It's not enough just to be on guard for ourselves and not to care about anybody else. And it's definitely not enough to try to be on guard for the flock, but not take care of yourself. You need to be on guard for yourself and on guard for all the flock. Go with me over to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. And I'll begin reading with verse 1. I want to give you the number one pitfall, the number one danger for our personal lives. When he says, be on guard for yourselves. There's a lot of areas we could talk about. We could, we could talk about diet. We could talk about rest. We could talk about exercise. I mean, there's plenty of things we need to take care of our lives with. But I want to give you the number one pitfall for a leader, the number one danger for a person who is a shepherd over God's sheep. What Paul means when he says, be on guard for yourselves. Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus speaking to his disciples, he says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. 
So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be in secret, and your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners, so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And then he continues on with many things that are related to that. So Jesus gives us two areas. One is our giving, and one is our prayer life. And in these two areas, we could sum up everything that we call practicing our righteousness. He doesn't say don't practice your righteousness. The Christian life is that. We are practicing the righteousness of God. We have been made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And faith without works is dead. We should put that into practice. We should be living the Christian life. But what he's talking about here is our motivation. The number one danger, the thing that Jesus says to beware of, is practicing our righteousness with a motivation of being seen and being rewarded by men. It's the church politics thing, the popularity of being a good Christian, doing things so that other people see us. And when our giving kind of sums up all the things that we do in the natural world, in our, in our ministry, in our physical ministry, and the prayer sums up all the things that relate to our spiritual ministry. Both sides are important. And he says, you know, that there are people, and he calls them the hypocrites, but they're the church leaders, that when they pray, they do it in such a way that people will see them praying and know that they pray. Now, Jesus isn't saying, obviously, that uh, you shouldn't go to a prayer meeting where other people are going to see you pray or know that you pray. Because, you know, obviously in the scripture, there's a great power in corporate prayer when we come together. But when, if your prayer life is all about other people hearing you pray or seeing you pray or knowing that you pray, then something's terribly wrong. If people around you think you don't pray enough, it may be that something good is going on in your life because your prayer life isn't about them finding out or about hearing about it. If people around you think, well, you're probably not a tither and you probably don't give enough money, then maybe your giving is being done in the right way. Maybe you're just not giving at all. I don't know. But if you're truly practicing your righteousness, it may be that people don't even know what you're doing. And it may be that your right hand doesn't even know what your left hand is doing. It may be that when you come to church and it's time for the offering, all of a sudden you're thinking, man, I don't even remember how much money I given this month, but man, there's an opportunity to give, so I want to give some more. You know, just that your right hand doesn't need to know what your left hand is doing. So the first thing I want to tell you is the person of God is vigilant in his attitude toward himself. He watches out for his motivations, and you know how deceptive our hearts are, and how easily we can get trapped with this pride of working our righteousness out so that other people see it and other people hear about it. So when you see that happening in your life, a person of God will take care over their own heart to watch out for their own righteousness. Do you have a place to go where you can shut yourself away and pray to your Father in heaven in secret? I see you could turn that into practicing it before men also. You know, you could tweet out every day or post every day, I'm going into my prayer closet now in secret so that nobody knows, oops, you already blew it because you told everybody about it. You know what I'm saying? And it's so deceptive and we can get trapped so easily by Satan because that's the biggest game he plays is to get us caught up in our pride of righteousness. So Jesus says, beware of that. Watch out for that. It can happen to anyone. And then he says, be on guard for the flock. Be on guard for the flock. And I'm going to read one verse to you out of Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, verse 32. 
if, if you have the opportunity, go read it in the context because everything that's being said there applies. But he says this, Jesus says to these disciples, he says, do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Do not be afraid, little flock. So Jesus isn't concerned about how many people are in the flock, is he? And he never seems to make a big deal out of that. In fact, in John chapter 6, everybody leaves except his 12 disciples, and they're mad and they're offended with him. And he doesn't think, well, I need to be a little more seeker friendly here so people will come. He turns to the disciples and says, are you going to go too? And they say, well, we, don't, we would, but we don't know where else to go because only you have the words of life. His interest was always serving the Father. And so he speaks to the little flock because he had a little flock. And he says to them, don't worry. Don't be afraid. You know, that song we sing today is so awesome about how he's inscribed us on the palm of his hand. You know, he's like taking, you know, an ink pen and writes my name on his hand. So that it's just right there. He sees me before his eyes. He says that we are the apple of his eye. And he knows. And he cares about us. When you have that attitude toward our children, toward our grandchildren, toward our flock, toward people around us, that attitude of grace, that we know it's God's good pleasure to give them the kingdom of God, that they could inherit the joy of the kingdom. Because that, for that very reason, Jesus purchased them with his blood. So go back over to Acts chapter 20. Paul says here that there are coming, there it's coming a day, and it's going to happen very soon. It's going to happen when I leave, after my departure, starting tomorrow. Savage wolves are going to come into this flock, and they will not spare the flock. I don't know how Paul knew this. Did he just know this by the Holy Spirit? I think he knows this by the Holy Spirit, but I think he also knew this because for all these years, he's been standing as the point man. He's been standing at the front. And they've been coming this whole time, but he's been dealing with them personally. You know what I'm saying? You know, there comes a time in our children's lives and it happens, anybody that's raised kids knows, knows this, it happens kind of gradually, that you kind of wean them off of your protection a little bit at a time, you know, where you feel that they're ready to do certain things. And they have to start dealing with the enemies themselves. Because you know I won't always be there to protect them. So you have to teach them to get them ready for that. And I say, Paul's saying to them, there will come savage wolves. They will not spare the lock, but the flock. And you have to be vigilant. You have to be ready for these things. Uh, and they will come after my departure. The word savage in the Greek is a really interesting word. It actually means heavy. But in the context of an animal, it means an animal that is so fierce that its attack is unrelenting. It's overbearing. It does not back down. That's the kind of wolves that he's talking about. Jesus made it clear when he said that these wolves would come in sheep's clothing, that they will come in among you, Paul said. And that means they come in sheep's clothing. There's no way the wolf would just come in by himself without the shepherds noticing it if it just came as a wolf. Right? It comes in sheep's clothing. And he says, you have to be prepared for this. Go with me over to Ezekiel chapter 22. Ezekiel chapter 22. And then we'll come back here. And I, I'm giving you four points today. I promise you the first one I'm spending most of the time on it because they lead into each other. But go to Ezekiel chapter 22. And verse 24. Ezekiel 22 and verse... Uh, well, I'll start with uh, Ezekiel 22, I'll start with verse 23. It says, And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, say to her, the her in the context is the city of Jerusalem, the people of God, the flock of God. Say to her, you are a land that is not cleansed or rained on in the day of indignation, in the day of my anger. You know, we haven't been getting much rain here. Back in old days when things like that happened, uh, you know, throughout the history of mankind up until we became so scientific 
people begin to think maybe God is trying to tell us something. And maybe we should think like that more often. He says, you're a, a land that is not cleansed or rained on in the day of indignation. There is a conspiracy, listen to this, there is a conspiracy of her prophets in her midst, like a roaring lion tearing the prey. They have devoured lives, they have taken treasure and precious things, they have made many widows in the midst of her. Her priests, so first he says the prophets, then he says the priests, her priests have done violence to my law and have profaned my holy things. They have made no distinction between the holy and the profane. And they have not taught the difference between the unclean and the clean. That sounds very much like the United States of America today, doesn't it? Nothing's unclean or clean anymore. They have not taught the difference between the unclean and the clean. And they hide their eyes from my Sabbaths. And I am profaned among them. And then he says, her princes... Within her are like wolves tearing the, the prey by shedding blood and destroying lives in order to get dishonest gain. Her prophets have smeared whitewash for them, seeing false visions and divining lies for them, saying, thus says the Lord God, when the Lord has not spoken. The people of the land have practiced oppression and committed robbery, and they have wronged the poor and the needy, and they have oppressed the sojourner without justice. I searched for a man among them who would build up the wall and stand in the gap before me for the land so that I would not destroy it, but I found no one. Thus I have poured out my indignation on them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. Their way I have brought upon their own heads, declares the Lord God. You know, this is a very important prophetic, redemptive scripture. This verse, I searched for a man among them. In verse 30. It's speaking prophetically of Jesus Christ. And I want to tell you today that there is no man of God, not one, in the entire United States of America who could stand in that gap and build up that breached wall today such that God would not bring judgment on this nation, except for Jesus Christ, the man of God. As you keep hearing, if we stay with him in the middle of the storm, we will be protected. We will be saved. But if we think we can make it through without him, we will be destroyed. He gives us three categories of shepherds here. Each one of these are shepherds. Each one of them are elders. Each one of them are overseers appointed by God. The first ones are the prophets. The prophets are the stewards. Do you know what a steward is? A steward is a good biblical word. But a steward does not own the house, but he takes care of the house, right? And he has great authority. And he has great power in the house, but he's not the owner of the house. And because he has that great authority, he also has a great responsibility before the owner. And we see this stewardship principle in many, many of the parables of Jesus. A steward is over the vineyard. A steward is over the flock. The steward, uh, the, the son in the prodigal son story, both sons, they are stewards. They receive an inheritance from the father, but they don't own the father's property. They don't own the family business. They are stewards uh, that have responsibility before the father. So the prophet, he is a steward of God's revelation. Okay? He is a steward of God's vision. The role of the prophet is to see where God wants us to go and to reveal that to other people, to reveal that to them. The Bible says you may all prophesy one by one. And I'm not saying that every single person in here is called to the full-time ministry of the prophet. In fact, very few people are called to that comparably. But every single one of us, because Jesus is the prophet and he lives in us, in our ministry role, in our leadership role, there is an aspect of that that we stand as a prophet of God. We are to have a vision. And we are to cast that vision or reveal that vision to others. But you know, sometimes a prophet doesn't like what he sees. And he doesn't want to say it like that. Because if he says it like that, then people won't give him money. I mean, I'm just being rude, but that's what it's talking about here. 
They've enriched themselves by telling people what they want to hear. God hates that because he is to be a steward of revelation. He is to speak what God shows him, whether people like that or not. Could you imagine that you knew that some danger was going to come uh, on your home? You knew that there was going to be some kind of uh, attack. Something was going to happen. Uh, or you knew that a tornado was going to hit your house. And when I was growing up, I remember this one year we had this real bad uh, streak of uh, tornadoes in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And I remember one night when we were uh, all sheltered and my dad was standing on the porch watching this tornado come. And uh, I ran out of the closet to go stand up. We, we get this closet under the staircase. And I ran out of the closet to go stand on the porch to see what he was, he was doing. And when I did, he turned and he, you know, he snapped at me, get back in that closet. My mom was screaming, get my baby, get in the closet. I, like, okay. I thought it was kind of cool. And obviously my dad thought it was kind of cool because he was standing on the porch watching it until the last minute. You know, and I remember the sound of it. It was like a jet airplane just coming right at your house or something. And I remember the sight of it. But could you imagine if my parents knew that that was coming and they didn't do anything? To protect us because they didn't want to upset us. We don't want you to be afraid of a tornado. Well, you know, sometimes we need to be afraid of what's coming. And the prophet needs to speak the vision and tell the people the truth. But the prophets were not doing that. The other one, the second one, is the priest. The priest is a steward of relationship. Think of the role of the priest. That his role was to make relationship, to stand in the gap, to make relationship with God. Um, the priest. He speaks of action, how we should practice our righteousness, what we should do. And the priests were not faithful either. And then we have the princes. So we have the prophets, the priests, and the princes. The princes, they are the stewards of righteousness, the stewards of justice, of righteousness. They uh, speak of, uh, I said that the, the priest speaks of action, but I meant the priest speaks of integrity, of our relationship with God. The priest, the, the prince speaks of action, how we should live and what we should do. So the prince is a governing authority of the land, of the society that we live in. All those people in Washington, D.C., they are what the Bible calls our princes, okay? They've been elected they put into a place to be stewards of righteousness in this land. You know, if you go over to Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, and I'm not going to open that right now, but if you go over there and read about our relationship with government, oftentimes we only focus on the part that tells us that we should submit to the governing authorities, that we should submit to the prophet, we should submit to the priest, we should submit to the prince. And that's true. But I think the real focus of those verses is how the governing authorities are supposed to act. Because the governing authorities, prophet, priest, and prince, they have a responsibility before God. And they've been given authority from God for two main reasons. Number one is to praise the good. To praise the good. Which means to encourage goodness and to stimulate goodness. And number two is to punish the evil, to discourage evil, and to diminish evil in the land. That's what they've been given that authority to do. And I can tell you that today, in our country, in the United States of America, good is not being encouraged. Evil is being encouraged. Good is not being uh, 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 stimulated. Evil is being stimulated. And there's no distinction between good and evil. You don't have to look very far to find that. Just look at the family. There is almost no stimulation in the United States of America for families to have children. Almost none. People are afraid to have more than two children. There's no stimulation for a woman to be able to give birth to a child and take any time off of work or at all. That's just the truth. There's not really any stimulation in the tax code that's left that really makes it worth it to have a child. And on the other hand, what is being stimulated, and you see it in the news, 
Uh, all these things related to transgenderism, men aren't men, women aren't women, and children should have access to all this stuff I don't even want to talk about in church because it's so perverse. And yet it's right there in our news every single day. People should not have children. There are too many people on the planet. There's already 8 billion people on the planet. We've got to get rid of some of these people. You know, there's no stimulation for the good. There's stimulation for evil. Because everything's been turned around. And what is good to God, we call evil. And what is evil to God, we call good. Go with me over to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. We're talking about wolves that come in in sheep's clothing. They may be prophets, they may be priests, they may be princes. In Matthew chapter 7 and verse 15, also in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, beware of the false prophets. So he's only going to talk about prophets here, but it applies to priests and princes also. Beware of the false prophets. The Greek for false prophets is very simple. It's pseudo-prophetes. Beware of the pseudo-prophets. The lying prophets. When it says false prophets, you know, it doesn't mean that they're going to walk in here dressed like uh, Islamic terrorists or something. That might work somewhere else, but it wouldn't work here, would it? They're going to come in whatever clothing works for us, but they are false prophets. Beware of the pseudo-prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. But inwardly, they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who prayed the sinner's prayer is going to get into the kingdom of heaven, is the way we would say it. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father, who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? I mean, we're talking about Holy Spirit power in a person's life. So apparently Jesus does not believe that Holy Spirit uh, power in a person's life, whether it's really the Holy Spirit or not, I'm not going to get into that. But evidences of power, whether it's working by the demons or something, I don't know, but miracles, he says, miracles, casting out demons, that that is not proof that a person is really in right relationship with God. That's not the kind of fruit that Jesus is talking about. Oh, I know they got good fruit because I went to those meetings and man, thousands of people just fell on the ground when that prophetic word went forth. It was amazing. Do you know there are scriptures in the Old Testament that tell us how you can tell a false prophet? One of them is this, that he prophesies something and says the Lord said it and then it does not happen. That's one of them. That's the obvious one. Although that's not even so obvious today. Because I can think of many people who have prophesied things that absolutely did not happen, didn't even come close to happening. And then we just go on thinking, oh, that's not that big a deal. They don't even apologize. But the other one is much uh, more tricky. Uh, they prophesy something and it does come to pass. And everything works out just like they said. But then they lead you away from God into idolatry. They lead you away. There's a division. What the Greek language calls in the New Testament heresy. That's what the word heresy means. It doesn't mean you have false doctrine. We think it means that, but what it really means is you divide the church. You pick people off away from the family of God. You're a heretic then because you divide people away from the only salvation they have. You're pulling them out of Noah's Ark when the flood is getting ready to come. Okay? So he says, you've got to beware of these people. You will know them by their fruit. Men, he says in verse 23, then I will declare to them, I never even knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So the real fruit is not in the things they, that they appear to do. 
Because do you know that miracles and casting out of demons and prophecy, it can actually be called by Jesus lawlessness? Lawlessness. <laughs> sin. Because whatever you do not by faith, that's sin. That's what the Bible says. Whatever you do out of the relationship with, with Jesus, that's, that's sin. So these things, these gifts of the Spirit, the power of the Spirit, they can be used in utterly wrong ways. And people want to ask, well, maybe they were saved and lost their salvation, or were they never saved? And, you know, I, I don't see any reason they even get into that. You know, because the, the bottom line is, they're not saved at the end of this thing. And you've got to beware. You've got to be vigilant. You cannot just accept everything because it comes down the pike and it looks good to you. He says they are ravenous. They are the word he uses here in the Greek that Jesus used is is the Greek word uh, where we actually directly through Greek and Latin get our word rape. They are rapacious wolves. They will steal you away. They will destroy your life, and you won't even know what happened. They will hit you so unexpectedly. They will come as sheep. They will look like good church members on the inside, but you will know them by their fruit. Now let me give you a little warning about just judging people too early and judging things too early. Jesus gives a parable in Matthew chapter 13 about the, the wheat and the tares, right? The weeds and the wheat. And the tares are sown among the wheat, but you can't tell them apart. You can't. At, at, Tanya doesn't like me even pulling weeds out of her garden. And I ask her, I'm, I'm 100% sure that is a weed, but is that something you planted? Because sometimes they look the same. I got to get her approval before I pull something out because I pulled some things out that I was 100% certain were weeds and it turned out it was something she planted. That, that's not a good idea. So, <laughs> so you want to be sure before you go around with that. I don't even use the Roundup in the backyard where the garden is. You know, a couple of little spots where they come. I just use that in the front yard where there's no garden stuff. And I'm real careful there, too. But <laughs> Because you don't know for sure where that stuff's going to overspray, what it's going to destroy something. Right? And you've got to be really careful using spiritual roundup to try to get rid of the weeds, you know, and, and the and the and, and, and you can't always tell. You cannot tell the difference between the tares and the wheat until they bear fruit. And in that parable, you know, Jesus says, I will send my angels into that harvest. You've got to have responsibility to pull weeds out. You've got to have authority to pull weeds out. You understand what I'm saying? Remember that Paul is speaking to the elders of the church. He's saying to them, these ravenous wolves, these savage wolves, they will come in among you. It's not the job of every single person of the church just to point the finger at each other all the time and saying that you're a wolf in sheep's clothing. Get How do you know they're a wolf in sheep's clothing? You know, you don't know that. You will know them by your fruit, by their fruit. And so what God is looking for today are shepherds. He's looking for today elders, bishops, men and women of God who will stand in that gap together with Jesus Christ, who take uh, careful guard over themselves and over the flock of God. And they know what a wolf in sheep's clothing looks like. And they know what just a bad sheep looks like. And there's a difference. He's still a sheep. This is not a very good sheep. He needs to get back in line. But when a wolf comes in, they need to be dealt with. And even with the wolves, you don't know until they begin to bear the fruit. So it is the elder's responsibility to expose these wolves and protect the sheep. Paul says to them to beware that these will come in from the outside. He says they will come in among you. But he doesn't stop there. He gives them another warning that I think is even scarier. He says that some of them will arise from among yourselves. That good church members will turn out to be wolves in, church, in sheep's clothing. And again, we don't have to decide were they wolves and then they always or did they turn into what? It doesn't matter. The point is that good church members will begin to rise up and divide the flock. And he warns them about this. And he says, from among yourselves, even among the elders. So if I'm there at that meeting with Paul and I'm an elder, I don't want to start pointing the fingers at the other elders saying, yeah, I knew that, you know, old Demetrius there is going to be the one 
I never did like him anyway. We should kick him off the elder board. I want to look at myself. Is it possible that I could turn into a wolf in sheep's clothing? Could I be the one? Take guard over yourself. I don't want to turn out to be like that. I want to keep from practicing my righteousness before men and keep my heart right before God because Satan is working overtime to infiltrate the flock of God and to destroy the church of God from the inside. He said to them, going back over to Acts chapter 20, he says to them, uh, let's look at this, this verse again. Therefore be on the alert, uh, I'm sorry, verse 30, from among your own selves men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. So what is the fruit that you can see? That you know that this person or these people, they are, uh, it's not safe for your kids to be around. Okay? You know, parents need to understand this. It's not right for these people to be in the fellowship of the church. Something needs to change. Something needs to be dealt with. And I can tell you, as a pastor, in many years of experience, there's always, this, this is always happening in the church. And as parents, I can tell you, in many years of, of experience, this is always happening when you're raising your kids. And you cannot just be one of these parents who wants to be popular. That was in our first four qualities of the man of God. Because you have to protect your children. You don't want to become the overprotective one that doesn't teach them to deal with their own battles. But at the same time, you don't want to thrust them into a battle they are not prepared for. How will you know? You'll know because these people will speak perverse things. The word perverse means twisted, distorted things. The words that come from their mouth, in some cases it may be obvious stuff, like they are just got a lot of foul language and they just talk about really bad things, right? But that's not the real danger. The real danger is when they say things that sound good and they sound right, but they're twisted, they're distorted, they're just a little bit off. Because everybody knows that if you're doing any project and you just get maybe one degree or one portion of a degree off in the beginning, you end up way, way off at the end, right? Everybody knows that. You know, if you're trying to thread a, 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 a a nut back onto a bolt or something and it's not going on really smooth, please don't keep tightening it. You're going to mess it all up. Take it off and get it so it just feels really good at the beginning, right? You know, because if you start it out wrong, it gets way off later. And so he says to them, they will be speaking perverse things. You've got to know the Bible. You've got to know the truth because they're going to speak things that are twisted. They're distorted. And here's the bad fruit you're going to see. This is what you're going to notice. They're going to start picking people off out of the church. You'll notice it with your kids. Everything's, you know, ever since they started hanging out with these kids or with these people, everything's a big secret that, you know, they don't want you included in their life. And you better beware when you see that happening. Because that's darkness, it's not light. You know, you want your kids Every parent knows this, right? To be hanging out with other kids that have a good relationship with their family, and you know their families, and you can talk about stuff, right? And there's not all these secrets and everything's hidden. And, you know, I get it. You know, I was a teenager. Every teenager wants to have his own private life. You know, this is my room. Stay out of my room. I used to do that, too. And my dad's way. Well, you ain't feeding yourself or paying for anything, so I'm going to come here and do what I want to do. This is my house, son. You know, and, and you've got to be that kind of dad. You've got to be that kind of mom. Don't just give them too much privacy. They will get in trouble. Don't you remember being a teenager? You, would, you got yourself in trouble. You know what I'm saying? And yet give them the level of privacy they're not ready for. So they can prepare for that. So in the church, it's the same thing. There can be division and strife and people fighting with each other. And that doesn't mean that they're wolves in sheep's clothing. Okay? But when you see them dividing the church, drawing people away, and drawing disciples after themselves... That's the moment when you know they are bearing very evil fruit. And they need to hear. They need to know you've got to stop doing this. And if they won't stop and they keep going in that direction, then you should beware. Beware of those kind of people. 
because they divide the church of God. There was a pastor in Murmansk, he's since passed away, he's an older guy than I than I am, and when I in Russia. And when I lived there and I was a pastor, I remember he made this statement one time about this other pastor, who I won't mention, he's still there. And I love him. <laughs> but in talking about this third pastor, he said to me, so-and-so is always fishing in my fishbowl, or always fishing in my aquarium. I said, what do you mean? Because he's always picking people out of my church. I get him saved, I bring him into the church, and then he comes along and takes him over to his church and divides my church up all the time. Now, you know, without getting into the politics of that, that statement really stuck with fishing in the aquarium. There are so many people out there that need to be saved. You know, if you want to start your own church, you want to start up your own ministry, great, have at it, but don't go picking apart somebody else's church. Don't go sowing division and strife among the saints. You know, you know what I'm saying? And so that's what he says is going to happen. It's going to be really dangerous, and you guys have got to be aware. So the first quality is to be vigilant. In verse 31, he says, therefore, be on the alert. In the Greek, it's one word that's being spoken here, and it means to be vigilant. He says, look at the example that I gave you. Night and day for three years without ceasing, I was always admonishing you. The Greek word to admonish means literally to place something in somebody's mind. I was always laying these things on your heart. You know, teaching is not just about reading notes to somebody, but imparting it to them, putting it on the inside. For three years, I was always doing this hard work. I was always with you in season and out of season, night and day. Go with me over to 2 Timothy chapter 4. And he says, you need to follow this example. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, we read that Paul says to Timothy, who, by the way, is in Ephesus when this is being written to him. So this is still being said to the elders in Ephesus. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, the last letter that Paul wrote. You know, it's actually the very last words that Paul speaks. It's the last chapter of the last letter. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. He says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. When you hear these words, hear these words for yourself and for your own ministry. That Jesus is saying, I solemnly charge you. He is to judge the living and the dead. And by his appearing and by his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, night and day. Don't ever be caught off guard. You know, if you were the watchman on a wall and your job was to protect a city and when it was your time to go onto that post, you would come with the instruments you needed for doing that. You know, they didn't have binoculars back in the old days, but you'd have good eyesight. Well, today maybe you need binoculars or some kind of scope or something like that. You know, maybe you needed some kind of instrument that would sound a warning to other people, right? Uh, you would have had a weapon, you would have had a sword, something with you uh, to defend and protect the city. And let's say that you went out there onto your post every single night for 40 years. And they still didn't let you retire yet. You were still doing it. For 40 years. And there was never even a peep. Nothing ever happened. Right? But then you go out tonight and say, well, nothing's ever happened. You know, so I, I, you know, or you go out and you find it, well, I, I, I got everything with me, but the trumpet, I, I forgot it at home. You know, I can't sound the alarm if something happens. But no big deal, nothing ever happens in this sleepy little town. And then that's the night when it happens. And you didn't have the trumpet with you, and you didn't sound the alarm, and the whole city is lost, right? That's what he's talking about. In season and out of season. If you realize you left the trumpet at home, go get the trumpet, Right? You know, what's the point of even owning the trumpet if you're not going to have it at the moment that you need it? If you don't have the weapon with you, if it's not loaded, if it's not prepared, what's the point of even having that then? If God has called you to this place, we need to be prepared with his word of God in season and out of season. Preach the word of God, he says. And he says, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience. So you're not just chopping people off, saying they're all wolves, but with great patience and instruction. 
He says, but the time will come, and it has already come, by the way, the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves. They will do this on YouTube. It doesn't have YouTube in the Bible, but this is the most, the, this, this verse is so accurate for today. They will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and they will turn away their ears from the truth and they will turn aside to myths. But you be sober in all things. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. And fulfill your ministry. So the first quality is a man of God is vigilant. Now I'm going to give you the next one. It's number six. We're going to spend less time on these. They just flow right into this. A man of God is graceful. A man of God, a person of God, a leader that God has, has set in his flock is graceful. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. You know the verse. When Paul is praying three times that the thorn in his flesh would be removed. And Jesus says to him, uh, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is more than enough for you. For my power is perfected in your weakness. Jesus basically says to him, I'm actually going to leave the thorn there. But Jesus, it's a messenger from Satan. Yeah, I know. And I'm going to leave it there. Why? So that you can understand how my power is perfected in your weaknesses. So that my grace, it's more than enough for you. No matter what's going on in your life, no matter what's going on around you. The thorn in the flesh, by the way, for Paul, if you'll read it carefully, was that every time he opened his mouth, he was persecuted. And many times he was in danger of his life. And he never had a moment just to relax. The battle never ended for him. And Jesus said, that's okay. Because that's where you are. But my grace is sufficient for you. It's more than enough. So put your trust in my grace. So a man of God is graceful. Full of God's grace. And Paul says to them, look at verse 32 of Acts chapter 20. He says, and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Little flock, it is the Father's good will that brings him great pleasure to give you the kingdom of God. And he says, I know that it's God's great pleasure for you to inherit the kingdom of God, for you to enter into all the riches of his kingdom, for you to walk in those riches in this life and for you to have eternal life. And so I commend you to the grace of God. Only the grace of God can build up your house and only the grace of God can keep you and bring you all the way into the inheritance of God. I've lived these three years among you. I've taught you and I've been with you. And I've been this example for you because I want to learn I want you to learn to depend on God's grace and not on me. Depend on God's grace and not on me. I love the ministry of the Apostle Paul because if anybody ever had the opportunity to make everybody dependent on himself, it would have been Paul. And he never does that. He ministers the way Jesus ministered. He's always directing them to the Father that they would depend on the grace of God because he knows that it's coming a day when he won't be with them anymore. And even if he's still with them, he can't be with them 24-7. But God is always with them. And so he teaches them to depend on the grace of God. And he says, I now commend you over to the grace of God who will build, which will build your house, will keep you and lead you into this eternal, eternal inheritance. Look with me at Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31. And verse 27. Jeremiah 31, 27. It says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will show, I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and with the seed of beast. As I have watched over them to pluck up, to break down, to overthrow, to destroy, and to bring disaster, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. Those, those days have already been fulfilled. They are being fulfilled before our very eyes. For over 2,000 years, 
God watched over the people of Israel and planted them in all the nations of the earth, scattered them to the nations of the earth. There are still more Jews in the United States living today than in the nation of Israel. That's going to change because God is still watching over that work. And he's saying that I will return them to the land and I will plant them in the land. And so he's saying, I'm watching over you. And even when I'm pulling down and destroying things in your life, it's because I want to build something better in your life. And don't worry about it. My grace is watching over you to build you up. My goal was never to destroy you. My goal was to bring down those houses that you built on the sand because they were going to crash and you were going to die. And I will build you a house on the rock and I'm watching over that by my grace. In those days, they will not say again, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. They'll stop talking about their generational curses and realize that I'm blessing them and their generation. And everyone will die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats the sour grapes, his teeth will be set on edge. So if you don't eat them, they won't be set on edge. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Not like the covenant I made with them when they were 100% dependent on Moses. And they would not make it without Moses. And they could not make it without Aaron. No, I'm going to make them a new covenant where their dependency is not on their Moseses or on their Joshua's, but their dependency is on me and on my grace. He says, I'm making them a new covenant. That covenant they broke. Although I was a husband to them, they didn't realize that I was really the one to depend on. They thought it was just Moses. He says, but this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel for those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So our names are written on his hand, and his name is written on my hand. They will not teach, uh, they will not teach again, each man his neighbor, and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin, I will remember no more. They will all know me. John says it like this, much simpler. In 1 John, he says, you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you already know all things and don't even need me, need me to teach you. I'm telling you this morning that I know that you, each one of you, have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know the Word of God, and you know more than you even think that you know, and you can depend upon the grace of God because He will bring it to pass. Go back with me over to Acts chapter 20. I'm going to close with two more. Number seven is the man of God is self-sufficient. Self-sufficient. And number eight, the man of God is generous. It is not a sin to be self-sufficient when your dependency and your sufficiency is the grace of God. When your sufficiency is the grace of God, then God wants us to grow up and be adults. The man of God, look at verse 33. Paul says, I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. That's the 10th commandment. Do not covet what another person has. I've not coveted your silver, your gold, or your clothes. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. In everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So number seven, a person of God is self-sufficient. He is not lusted after the things that, are, that belong to others. He works hard by faith, trusts God's grace to supply his own needs and to supply the needs of those that are with him. This example of hard work is what I've set before you. And it's the example that you're going to have to set before the others that they see that God's grace really works, that you can depend on it and you can work the works of grace with your own hands and God will provide for all of your needs. And you know this because I've borne the fruit of generosity, that I've been an example of giving my time and my energy to those people who are weak, to support the weak. If you would be vigilant, if you would be prepared for the days that are coming, 
then focus your heart and your mind and your lives on the grace of God. Focus your life on this principle that Jesus gives. He says this thing. He says that you know what Jesus said. And you can't find this statement anywhere in the Gospels. It's not in the four Gospels. Okay? So how did Paul know Jesus had said that? Well, number one, not everything that Jesus said is in the four Gospels. And John says that. But I believe that this was a statement like what Jesus said to him when he said, my grace is sufficient for you. This is something Jesus said privately to Paul. Because he said a lot of things to Paul. Jesus talked with Paul. And he said to them, when I was with you for three years, I kept telling you that Jesus told me, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And that's what I want you to remember. If you're going to be the shepherds that God wants you to be, that's got to be in the forefront of your mind. That you're not in this for yourself, you're in this for the weak. You're in this for the others. You're here to raise them up and to make them strong. And if at the end of the day you feel like you're not getting paid good enough and things aren't being taken care of well enough and you've got something to complain about, then you remember that parable that Jesus said. That at the end of the day, the servant doesn't come in from the field and eat his dinner. First, he serves the master and says, I'm just an unworthy slave. And then he gets to eat his dinner. How many of you like to cook or prepare food for others? You know, there is a secret in preparing food for others. It's one of the reasons I love to grill stuff. Like last night, we grilled some, uh, made some buffalo wings on the, on the smoker. Man, they were good. And it just takes a little bit. I love to be the one in charge of that. You know why? Because I get to eat the little thing. I gotta, I gotta test this and see if this is good or not. Yeah. You know, and then after you serve everybody else and they've eaten everything and you're the one that's in charge of cleaning up, that's awesome too. Because you get to lick up all that cream and whatever's left over. There are blessings to serving others. And nothing compares with somebody's eyes lighting up and saying, this is delicious. This is really good. You know, Jesus said, I have food to eat that you know not of. Remember he said that to his disciples? There is a food to eat that people don't know about. And it's the blessing of giving. It's the blessing of serving in a way that you don't even do it, that people even know what you're doing, but you know it between you and the Father. Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. If there's any lesson we could teach our children, if there's any lesson we could instill into the flock of God, it is this, that you're going to get so blessed when you're a giver. As long as you're complaining about your rights, and demanding your rights, it's not fair, I have a right, yeah, okay, you have a right, take your right, here's your right, you know what I'm saying? But if you just give up your rights and serve someone else, you'll get so much more, because it is more blessed to give than to receive. So let me finish just by reading the last three verses, the parting with Paul. When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all, and they began to weep aloud and embrace Paul and repeatedly kissed him, grieving especially over the word which he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they were accompanying him to the ship. You know what I see in those verses? I see that the ministry really worked. It really worked. Because the only thing they're crying about, they're not crying about the savage wolves. They're not crying about you know, the uh, things that might happen after Paul leaves. No, there's one thing that they're in tears about. They're in tears that Paul is leaving, and he's told them that you'll never see my face again. That means Paul did his job, because the ministry is all about the relationship. And they know they can depend on God, but they wish Paul would be around a little bit more, because there's real love and relationship. You know why? Because he never made them dependent on himself, he joined them to God. And they're sad that they'll never see him again on this earth. But they support him and follow him all the way to the ship. And they commend him to the grace of God just as he commended them. Let's stand together. Father, I just thank you for your word this morning. Lord, I just pray that you would help us to be vigilant. That you would help us to walk in the grace of God. That we would never leave any of that grace behind. We would never even step outside the house or wake up in the morning without taking on to ourselves the full armor of God because those pieces of armor, that's your grace. 
That's your grace. That shield of faith. That helmet of salvation. That sword of the Spirit. Those things are your grace. It's what you've graced us with. It's the gifts that you've given us, Lord. That we would walk in those things and we would embrace the battle. And we would stand in the place that you've called us to stand as overseers and as shepherds, Lord, as elders in your body. That we would lay down our lives knowing that it's more blessed to give of our life than to receive it. And that as we give our lives, that's when we really find them in you, Lord. These aren't just nice platitudes that sound good in a sermon about servant leadership or something. That we walk out of here and we don't practice. This, this isn't just the truth. It's just real life. The real blessing is in giving. That we might follow you, Jesus. When you say to take up your cross and follow me, I don't think you're talking about us just being courageous and going through hard times. I think what you're saying is that we would lay down our lives for others just as you laid down your life for us. And we would follow that road all the way, Lord. Do the, the work of an evangelist. To bring the people of this earth, Lord, those that you've called and chosen, that they would be in right relationship with you. So we lift up before you the faces of our children, our grandchildren, our nieces, nephews, friends, neighbors, whoever it is that you've put, that, that, that equals, that house that you've made us a steward over. Everyone in here is a steward over some house. It may be little, but your flock was little. Whatever it is, it's small. If I were the richest man in the world today and had the biggest house and the most responsibility, you would still say that's just a little thing because all you ever ask us to do is to be faithful over the little things. It's nothing compared to the universe. So Lord, we just lift that house up before you. Just make a mental picture of that house before you that we're stewards over that house, Lord. We just commend that house to your grace. That it would be built up and established by your grace. Not by our dead works. Not by an old covenant where you were always our husband but we didn't really know it. By your grace, Lord. Let my children, let my grandchildren, let my church let my family really know you, Jesus, and be dependent upon that grace, Lord, I pray. Give us wisdom and give us courage and give us strength that we're always prepared in season and out of season to defend against the enemies of your grace, those that come to divide and to destroy. We just thank you. We give you praise and glory and honor this morning. We hope you enjoyed the message. Before you leave, I want to remind you that if you want to continue receiving updates on the sermons, that you subscribe to our podcast. If you want more information on how to contact us, make sure to check out our website at urintonvillianfellowship.com. And we'll see you next time on the YBF Podcast.